Amen. Hey, once again, as I just stated, we are in the book of James study. What's the tagline? How to spot a what? A phony Christian. As we've been seen the last 12 times, that is not a foreign concept in the scripture. That is all over the place in the Bible. Uh, not just Old Testament dealing with fakers there in the midst, but you're also dealing with the New Testament. What do you see? Verbiage like what? Specifically, false apostles, false prophets, false teachers. And Paul said he was even in danger from who? False brothers. What's that? That's a fake Christian. Right? So this is not a foreign concept in the scripture. Rather, what we see is God not only tells us that this is going to happen, unfortunately, but he tells us the good news how to spot them. Right, And that's what the book of James is all about. And that's very applicable today because why? Why are we doing it on Wednesday night? The enemies within the church and dealing with that? Because fakers, listen, have not only been sitting in the pews and made comfortable in the pews because of the lie of the church growth movement for 30 years. Now they've moved into positions. They've infiltrated the church and they're starting to control the church. That's why we're in the apostasy. So we're going to continue that journey. How to spot a phony Christian, the book of James. How do you know if you've got a faker in your midst that, dare I say, you need to witness to? But whatever you do, don't let them into a position of authority or teaching. It's like yeast. It'll spread and destroy. And that's what Satan wants. But let's take a look at that journey again. James chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Okay. Lord willing, I've heard some people have been praying. And if we're still alive and still here, next week, verse 5. Woo! I'm excited. But hey, we're not there yet. We've got one more week on verse 4. Let's take a look. James chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. James, a servant of who? God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, the early church at this time. Okay, scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever what? You face trials of what? Many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. And here it is, verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Code word for it's good. It's really good. God's doing something good with your trial. You may be seated if you can, but again, we've been seeing James is the first book chronologically written to the early church as they finally get dispersed out into the world like they're supposed to, okay? And immediately, he begins to provide the church with acid tests. How do you know if you got a fake in your midst? Why? Because that's what Satan, if you read the scripture, which I highly recommend, that's right, in stereo, bro, right on. We didn't even practice. Usually, we take all week to practice, but because that's all we do. Yeah, you believe that. I'll buy you a jacket like this and make you wear it. But anyway, that's right. Uh, but <laughs> no, but, so, but again, because why? Because you read the New Testament and you see that Satan, ever since he lost, right? Jesus rose again from the grave, right? He secured our salvation. He can't take it away. He's headed to the lake of fire. He's the big loser. We're going to see that again today. And so he's been trying to implant in the church a bunch of fakers so that people will come and then get a false gospel, a false Jesus, and join him in the lake of fire. So here comes James right out of the gate and say, hey, listen, here's how to spot if you got one of these, if you will, satanic plants uh, in your midst. And the first thing he gives us is the acid test of trials, okay? And the first thing is, it's not just going through trials. Here's the acid test. Do you have joy in the midst of your trials? Now, why is that an acid test? Because listen, lost people can go through trials. We all go through trials. Heaven comes later. This is not heaven, right? Okay, we get that. But joy, are you, how, joy in the midst of your trials? Yeah, if you're a born-again Christian, you can. Because the Bible is clear, Jesus endured the j- cross for the joy set before him, i.e. our salvation. Okay, but also, when you become a true born-again Christian, what happens at the moment of salvation? Bang, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And what's the second fruit that he begins to produce in you? Love Joy. So the ability, even supernaturally, it's not natural. You don't naturally go, I can't wait for a trial. You, you don't, it, so it's supernatural. It can happen if you're a born-again Christian, right? And so that's what he's talking about. Then we've been going to take a look at the second test, okay? Uh, how do you know you might got to fake it? Well, it's, it's, do you submit to God in the midst of that trial? Not just joy, but do you submit to God and realize that it's not by chance. He's doing something good. I want to learn it so I don't have to take a lap. And that's what we've been dealing with in the uh, last two times in verse four. He says, you've got to let the trial run its course. Submit to it. Know that God's doing something good. Otherwise, what? Groundhog day, and you got to do it all over again. Remember that? So here's what you do. Perseverance must finish its work in the, in the English that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The Greek literally says this, but be allowing literally let the affirmation patience to be having its complete work in order that you may be spiritually mature and complete in every detail lacking in nothing. You got to let it run its course. You don't resist it. You don't run from it. You don't blame people for it. And you certainly don't get to the point where I'm mad at God. Hey, don't ever get there. You get there, I'll be over here while the lightning bolt gets you. Don't ever do that, Christian. Excuse me? Don't ever ask for God's justice. Otherwise, we'd all go straight to hell, myself included. 
You need to celebrate his love and mercy and grace that we just sung about. Amazing love. <laughs> okay. But what you need to do is you need to recognize that God knows what he's doing. Right. And we need to submit to it. It's a command. Right. Okay. The idea is submit to this. Okay. Uh, God's more concerned about your character. You got to submit to it. Don't run from the trial. Learn from it. Otherwise, you're going to have to repeat it. Right. You ever go through a trial and have some pain? Right. And then so you've, let's say you've invested a whole week in pain going through this trial. And then you finally see the end. And you go, hey, hey, I'm going to purposely not learn the lesson so I can do it again next week. That's what's going to happen if you don't submit to it and learn from it. Right? Why would you do that? Don't do that. Right? And so we've been seeing three things to help us submit to God's good work in this trial. Yes, he's doing something good. That's what James said. That's why you consider pure joy. Okay, and the first thing is, hello, nothing is by chance. Right? Nothing's by chance. Not even the trial swimming away. If God's allowed it, he's allowed it for a good purpose right? The second thing we saw last time is no Christian is exempt from suffering. And this is what we do. This is how we get sidetracked. Well, oh yeah, nothing's by chance, but this ain't right. This ain't fair. How come I'm the only one that's got to go through this? Blah, 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 blah. And guess what? If that's your attitude, guess what? Groundhog day, you're going to learn it all over again because you're resisting it. You're running from it. You're blaming it, blame shifting. You're doing all this. And you act like something foreign's going on. No, this is not heaven. It comes later. And then again, read your Bible and you see, excuse me, how many times I got to tell you? The Bible says we're going to suffer. Hello, Jesus, our, the suffering servant, our Lord and Savior. He suffered, but God did something good out of that, didn't he? Praise God, all none of you. Yeah, it's called we got saved. Okay, the apostles suffered, right? And of course, it still goes on today. The Bible talks about, okay? And what we saw is God's doing something good, right? As we saw last time we ended, what's some of the good things he's doing that we need to submit to? Well, we saw that every day through the challenges, it what? It gets us to build our spiritual muscles. Remember that? The Conan, the Christian? It was rough to put this jacket on. To get bigger. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Anyway, so but it builds our spiritual muscles. Now, why does God allow challenges sometimes virtually every day? Why does he, why does he always got us pumping the spiritual weights? Because sometimes in life you get a big one where you're thrust into the ring. And if you're going to stand and keep getting up the mat like Rocky, or you may be knocked down, but you're not knocked out. Remember that? That's what God's doing every day. He's building your muscles because sometimes you're going to get a big one. But the good news is God will prepare you even for that, and you'll get right back up no matter what life throws you away. Isn't that awesome? Now, we left there uh, last time with that uh, real-life Rocky, if you will, spiritual Rocky, uh, in the making. Remember Zach? That video was Zach, if you were here last week. And he was looking death and cancer in the face. I mean, he's a fellow brother like us. He was serving God, right? And, and remember his statement? He says, and I quote, if God chooses to heal me, then God is still God and God is still good. But if God chooses not to heal me and I should die, then God is still God and God is still good. To God be the glory. Wow. Remember that? Well, let's take a look at the rest of Zach's story. How did it go? And this one is through his wife, Mandy. Let's take a look at that. The day that Zach died, there was a huge and sudden storm. The kind that creeps in without warning, comes at you fast, and leaves in an instant. As I was saying goodbye to my love, the clouds came, the earth shook, and the thunder rumbled. One year and eight days after being diagnosed with cancer, Zach stepped into eternity. Ever since I was a little girl, I asked God to bring me the perfect husband. Zach and I met in the fall of 1994, and after four years of dating, we got married. We added to the joy in our lives by having our only girl, Lizzie Darling. And then, 19 months later, God blessed us with our first boy, Jake. But our family wasn't complete there. We then had our cherry on top, Luke. We were a perfectly happy family of five. When Zach died, I was wrecked. In an instant, I had lost my husband, my best friend, and an incredible father. My world had changed forever. My identity in the past 17 years had been so much about who I was with Zach. He was my everything. Even though he dealt with a year-long battle of cancer, it seemed all so sudden. And now the kids and I were left to learn how to grieve. We spent the next few months trying to figure out what this life without Zach was supposed to look like. His absence was overwhelming. I prepared way too much food at dinner, not remembering that he wasn't there to eat it with us. 
One side of the bed always stayed made. There was no one to sleep in it. His chair sat empty. And I no longer heard the sounds of him and the kids playing while watching TV. We were now a family of four. Grief is so hard. No one can tell you how you are going to feel or when it will strike. But God is so good and so faithful. He has given hope to our family. Hope for today when we grieve and all of the tomorrows that are yet to come. God has shown hope to my family through circumstances, gifts of goodness, and through the promises in his word. Zach and the boys were always such huge Broncos fans. And in October, we had the opportunity to fly to Denver, Colorado, and get to meet two of the Broncos players, Tim Tebow and Britton Colquitt. This was such a dream come true for my boys. And then in November, Family First Organization flew us to Tampa Bay, Florida to receive the All-Pro Dad Award from Tony Dungy. It was so awesome to see my kids receive a standing ovation in honor of their dad. It was such a blessing to see how Zach's story and suffering blessed others. But even after the incredible experiences God has brought to us and through the love and support that we received from family and friends, God ultimately shows His goodness to us through the promises in His Word. Jeremiah 29.11 tells us that God has a plan for us, and that plan is to prosper, and it's for hope, and it's for a future. I tell my kids this all the time. God is not a God of chaos. He doesn't just throw stuff to us in our lives and then walk away. He has a plan for us. We might not always understand that plan, but we know that it is good. There are some days that are really hard, and yes, times are tough. But God reminds us of His goodness through the promises in His Word. God shows hope to people in different ways. What's been my experience might not be yours. But I can tell you this, if you desperately seek and run after Him, He will make Himself known to you. As Zach's soul left the earth and went to where it was meant to be, I looked out the window, and as the storm cleared, the sun began to shine through the clouds. It was then I realized that he was healed. He was no longer in pain. At that moment, God gave me hope. God knew that I would be a widow and mother to three at the age of 32. Why did he allow this to happen? I don't have all the answers, but I do know that I will praise God because through cancer and death and grief, God is still God and God is still good. To God be the glory. That's our sister in Christ. That's today's reality. Not just the early church. That's today's reality. How do you do that? When you're thrust into that ring, not the, my French fries are cold. When you're thrust into that, how do you look at the loss of a loved one and the reality of starting all over again, being a single parent, and literally, truly, not just say it, but even make a video so others can be encouraged that God is still God and God is still good to God be the glory. How do you do that? Because she understands the scripture. She understands what James is trying to get through her head. God is not some ogre. He's not some cosmic terrorist. Like, what did she say? He's not just throwing things your way and then just walking away. He will take everything we go through, and he'll turn it around into something good. Before we get to heaven, where it's only good all the time. Isn't that awesome? That's how you do it, and that's what uh, James is trying to get through our heads. But he says, again, you've got to let it run its course, which leads us to the third thing I want to deal with, and then we'll move on, Lord willing. And this one is another detour, right? Sometimes you're going to go through that trial and say, yeah, yeah, nothing's by chance. And then you go, yeah, yeah, I get it. I'm not, uh, this isn't heaven. Heaven comes later. You're going to have trials, right? But you can still take a detour if you don't know where suffering comes from and if you're not asking the right questions in the midst of your pain, Okay. And I say that because how many times you go through a problem and then we can still blow it. Uh, it doesn't finish its work because we give in to the lie of the devil. That what kind of a God would do this? Why am I going through this? This isn't right. And, and then we act like, listen, God is the one who's responsible for sin, evil, and suffering. Excuse me? 
He is not the one who is the author of sin, evil, and suffering. Okay? Rather, the good news is he is so powerful and good and loving and sovereign, he'll take even the sin, the evil, and suffering that he's not the author of, and he'll flip it around for your good. But see, that's what Satan does. He gets you, he gets you to shake a fist at God. He wants, he wants you to join. What kind of God would do that? Well, I mean, if he loved me, I wouldn't have to go. You ever have those thoughts go through your head? We act like God is the one who is the author of evil. He's not. So let's dispel that. Okay, where did it come from? Hello, it came from Satan, right? Isaiah 14 is one passage. We'll deal with the other passage in a second about Satan's fall. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. How many guys would say Satan's got an eye problem? Yeah, me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity, right? Which, by the way, is the number one law of Satanism. Keep that in mind, right? Uh, But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. In other words, you're a loser. The job wasn't open. You'll never be God. Hello. Okay, but here's the passage, one of the passages dealing with the devil and his fall, the fall of Satan, okay? And it explains to us where and why we have evil and suffering in this world. It started from the devil, not God, right? And then, but even here, even though that's plain in the scripture, right? Uh, you'll still have this thought goes here. Well, wait a second. Well, well, God's not loving because he's the one who created evil. No, what did we just read? Where did evil come from? It came from Satan. He's the one that gave birth to sin, this eye problem. You think about sin. What is sin? S-I-N. What's right smack dab in the middle of the word? I. Every time that we sin, right, what are we doing at that moment we make that decision? I will do what I want to do. I'm not going to follow God. I think I know what's better. I, that's the heart of sin. Where'd the I problem come from? Satan. God is not the author of sin. Are you kidding me? right? Satan is the author of sin, right? J. Ver McGee says, these are the five I wills of Lucifer. He was setting his will against the will of God. This is sin in embryo. And it began by a creature setting his will against the will of God. The sin of Satan was overweening pride. It wasn't the purpose of Satan to be different from God. Listen, he wanted to be God. He put his will above the will of God. And listen, any creature who does that puts himself in the place of God. So it came from Satan. Now, the other p- key passage there isn't just the I, I, I problem, which is sin, okay? Uh, it's the phrase there, the fall, the fall of Satan, right? What does that imply? It means it didn't used to be that way, right? And that's what you see. When God created the heavens and the earth, the Genesis account, uh, he created it to be an absolutely fantastic place for mankind creating his image to have a beautiful relationship with him. In fact, he even said it was paradise, right? Uh, In fact, when he got done, he didn't just say it was good. It was very good. But then here comes, as we see in the scripture, Satan, and he did something very bad. He fell. He developed this I problem, rebelled against God. And then the bad news was, the unfortunate news was what? He took that I problem and he transferred it into Adam and Eve by getting them to rebel against God. And since we all come from Adam and Eve, you know, the mom factor, then guess what? We all have an eye problem, i.e. sin. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible is very clear. When that happened in the creation account, that's why we have evil and suffering. God made paradise. He didn't make a pile of junk. But here comes Satan rebelled. He got mankind to rebel. And this is what we got today. Romans 5, 12. This then is what has happened. Sin made its entry into the world through one man, Adam. And through sin came what? Death. Suffering, evil, all that baloney. The entail of sin and death passed on to the whole human race, and no one could break it, for no one was himself free from sin, right? So God is not the author of sin, Satan is, but then typically it'll lead to the next objection. It's like this. Well, okay, well, but God still created evil because he created the devil. No, he didn't, right? Okay, and this is very important to understand, right? And this is in Ezekiel 28, the other passage in the Bible that talks about the fall of Satan, right? Here's what it says, verse 12 through 17. You were the perfection of wisdom and beauty. You were, notice the key word, were. You were in Eden, the Garden of Eden 
uh, the garden of God. Uh, your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were, they were given uh, to you on the day that you were created. I, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until what? The day evil was what? Found in who? You, Satan, right? Your great wealth filled you with violence and you sinned. So I banished you from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of your beauty. You uh, corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. In other words, you lost. But it says here, according to the Bible, that listen, Satan was originally created as what? A beautiful, blameless Angel of light, unfortunately, one day turned into the fallen angel of darkness that we're dealing with today. Now, here's the point. It says there, until wickedness was found in him. God didn't create him, the devil, right? Here's the point. It's understanding this that you get the appropriate response. Evil was found in him. That means Satan is the one responsible for evil. Listen, because evil is not a created thing. That you can say, well, God created that. No, he didn't. Evil is the absence of good. Right? Let me give you a couple of analogies. Number one, let's say I just happen to like this, what is it, kiwi, lime. I, I got beat up by a highlighter. Did you make your decision? Just deal with that. Highlighter. Highlighter. I know that's the most popular one today, at least by 80%, but who's counting? I am. But anyway, that's right. Uh, so let's say, I, I, man, I just love the checker so much. I wore it all week long, but I wore it all week long, and, and apparently it was so popular, and people just had to keep touching. And all of a sudden, I found a hole in my jacket, right? So was the hole something created there? Or rather, is the hole simply the absence of jacket material? Let me give you another analogy, because uh, you're off on the jacket thing. <laughs> Darkness, which, by the way, Satan is compared to, Right? Is darkness really something created or is simply darkness the absence of light? So here's my point. Evil is like that. Evil is the absence of something, right? And that's what God created Lucifer in the beginning as a whole, just like everything else. That's why he said it was very good until the absence of good appeared where? Into Satan and he fell and that's where it comes from. Do you get it? So you can't say that God created evil because he created the devil. No, it was originally good until Satan messed up. But then you think, well, wait a second. Well, God's still responsible because he knew that would happen. Yeah, he's God. He knows the beginning from the end. And you say, well, then why did he allow it? Well, that question gets answered when you look at God's motive for creation in the first place. The Bible's very clear. Why did God create everything? He had nothing to do. No, he wanted for, for his glory. He, he created mankind specifically in his image, okay, to have a relationship, right? But then you go back down to, well, how do you have a true loving relationship? It's when you force people to love you. <laughs> no, right? That's not a true loving relationship, right? It, let me give you another analogy. Again, skip the jacket thing. You're already off course still. Uh, uh, my children, Rebecca and Billy, they came for me. They were responsible for me for the creation. Already it's Mother's Day. My wife had some help with that. Okay, I'll, I'll honor that. Okay, come on. But all right, so, so they, they are responsible f- for me for their creation. So you would think that they should love me, right? They, of course, because without me, you wouldn't be here, right? And so, so, but listen, but here's the point. Is it a relationship when I say, you've got to love me? No. When does it become a true loving relationship? When they, of their own volition, choose to say, I love you in return. That's what God did. It's, it's called what's the best possible of all worlds, theologically, apologetically. Right? God could have made a bunch of robots that we only said yes and, and never said a no, but is that a loving relationship? No, not even close. So Adam and Eve had to have the ability to not just say yes, but what? Say no. Unfortunately, what do we read? They said no to God and his command, and they said yes to Satan, so we're dealing with this, Right? So, so that's the best possible rule. But you got, you got to do that. You got to have a true ability for a yes and a no in order to have a true loving relationship, which brings us to the third one. They say, well, God's not loving because he's done nothing to stop all this evil and suffering. <laughs> what? 
What Bible are you reading? God's done all kinds of things, fantastic things about evil and suffering. And the first thing he's done, he's judged it, right? Satan's a loser, right? That's, he knows his gig is up. This is why James is writing this stuff. Satan knows he's lost. He knows that Jesus defeated him on the cross. That's why he's trying to implant in the church a bunch of false teachers and a false gospel so people will join him in the lake of fire. He's on death row, waiting his sentence. It's over. Christ judged him on the cross, right? He's been judged. He's defeated. He's the defeated foe, right? That's what the Bible says, 1 John 3. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? To destroy the devil's work, right? And then Colossians 2, uh, 9 through 10 and 15 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Jesus, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over what? Every power and authority. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus Christ judged him. It's over. He won. We're not losers. Satan's a loser. The devil was stripped by Christ on the cross. He destroyed him. He judged him. He exposed him. He shattered him. He defeated him utterly on the cross. The promise of Genesis 3.15, right after when Adam and Eve made the mistake and they sinned against God, that God says one day the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's what Jesus did to Satan on the cross. His gig is up. He's a stingless dragon. He's a fangless lion. He's totally defeated, a noisy liar, and he knows that one day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, including him. He's judged. And he's going to the lake of fire. What do you mean God hasn't done anything about evil? Oh yeah, he has. Then the cool thing is, before that day comes, when Satan is cast into the lake of fire, it's just a matter of time, folks. God put a limit on evil. And this is what we're seeing in James, man. Right? Satan's not some loose cannon on deck. Oh, he's just having a heyday with me. No! If anything happens in your life, even if it is a satanic attack, God's doing something good in the midst of it. Because God is the one that Satan has to answer. He has to give permission. And we see this in Job. We see this also in the New Testament with Peter. First uh, Job 6, uh, 9 through 12. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And who? Satan. Uh, also came with them. Does not Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but you stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said, very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, what? Do not lay a finger. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This passage tells us, listen, the good news, Satan is not a loose cannon on the deck. He doesn't get whatever he wants to do. If you will, God's got a leash on the guy. He's not roaming around the earth doing whatever the world he wants to do. God is sovereign. He's put a limit on him, right? And then this is the good news. Even if you're actually even experiencing a really big deal, not just oh, my French fries are cold. You cut me off in traffic. Even a spiritual warfare, even from Satan himself, you can take comfort like Job knows. Listen, I may not get it now. I might be on a big old pile of dung right now. But my God is doing something wonderful. And sure enough, you read the rest of the story because it takes time. It's over time. What happened to Job? Man, he lost it all, went bankruptcy and and died. No, that's not what he says. He ended up twice as much, twice the blessing when it was all over. Can I tell you something? God did something good. Peter, New Testament, what did Jesus say? Satan had to ask to sift you like wheat. Don't give him to the lie that, oh, God, this is Satan. He's just having a heyday. No, he's not. Biblically, you go, uh uh-uh. Listen, it might be something from Satan, but my God put a limit on him. And my God's promised me he's going he's to bless me at the end. But again, what's James saying? You've got to submit to it. Don't sit there, because the moment you start going, good, I get, guess what? Groundhog Day. You're going to do it all over again. Right? So learn from it. And let's, and let's see the other one. The third and final one. God's done some incredible things. He's not only judged it, he's not only limited it. In the meantime, one day, <laughs> it's going to stop. And we get to be a part of it forever. Right? He's made a way out of this evil, rotten, horrible world. That's the good news of the gospel, right? God came to save us so that we can have a better economic existence. No, that's that lie that we're dealing with Wednesday, social justice and that. Would, no! He came to save us, not only from this wicked world, but 
from hell for all eternity. You talk about evil and suffering and torment and that's what we deserve. But that's why it's called the good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, his one and only son to what? Whoever believes in him shall not what? Perish is the key word. What do you mean perish? But receive what? Eternal life. Through Jesus Christ. You hear me say this all the time. I do it a lot on purpose. I call it the silent H word in churches today. Now, not here, but go visit somewhere once in a while. When's the last time you ever heard a sermon on hell? Or even mentioned the word hell? Or sin? Or Satan? Or spiritual warfare? Or just about anything in the Bible? That's the problem. You're not getting it. And Satan is having a heyday with these people. Like, yeah, he's another. I'm going through pain. These guys, these hucksters we saw last week in the pulpit, they said if I sow a seed to their ministry, I can have a perfect life and wear neon jackets like Pastor Billy and drive Cadillacs and do all this stuff. Like, ah. And then suffering come along, and then you listen to the lie of the devil. Go, look at him, guys. And guess what? Take a lap. Again, how many guys, you, you, you wake up one day and you're going like, man, this whole week has been rough. And instead of submitting to say, God, what are you trying to teach me? And I want to learn this. I don't want to take a lap. That you purposely at the end of it, right when you could almost get out of it, then you go, ah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to purposely not learn what you're trying to teach me, God, because I want to do it again next week. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. Submit to it. Learn from it. Satan wants you, what can we get? You did nothing with me. And guess what? You ain't going to learn. You're not going to let it finish its work. You must let perseverance finish its work if you're going to be a complete, mature Christian. Learn from it. You've invested this much pain. Why let it go to waste? But one day, no more of this. And that's a good perspective to have. Okay, because here's what's coming. It isn't just that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Praise God for that. Because that means... We get to escape the penalty of our sins, that hell place we're just talking about. Anybody glad about that? Praise God all for you. The rest of you, I'm glad you're here. We're going to keep sharing the gospel until you get saved. No, okay, and if that's all there was to salvation, isn't that good enough? It's like, who cares what we go through? I'm not going to hell forever. Woo! But that's not it. That's not all. That's That's just getting a kickstart of what Jesus did on the cross. Then what? Then we go to heaven. Last time I checked, it's a little better than here. Let's take a look at that. Just real quick, right? It's the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of his holy angels. It's a heavenly country. It's a holy place, which means no sin, man. It's an eternal paradise. It's a place where the streets are made of gold. The gates are made of pearls. The foundations are precious gems. It's a place of eternal rest. It's a place of eternal joy. It's a place without wickedness. It's a place without darkness. It's a place without sin. It's a place without tears. It's a place without mourning. It's a place without pain. It's a place without death. It's a place of absolute purity. It's a place filled with the glory of God. Listen, it's an everlasting place. Once you get there praise god you can't get kicked out it's coming i'm not just rescued from hell what i deserve i get to go to that what do you mean god hasn't done something about evil and so are you kidding me oh and then we're not done what's the bible say oh god has he he is appointed listen we call it what judgment day what's judgment day all about that's the day when he says bang that's it evil suffering, the new world order, all this tyranny and wickedness that's going on, it's over. And God unleashes seven years of his wrath. But we're up in what? Heaven during that time. Enjoying what we just described. And then what? We stay up there for millions of years, strumming on harps. We get into harp wars with Rob. I'll beat him this time. Oh, he got me again. Maybe next million years. Because that's all you do. No. We not only get to enjoy heaven, Revelation 19, after God is judging this planet because of wickedness, evil, and suffering, we get to be a part of the millennial kingdom. Revelation 19. Read your Bible. In that place, Isaiah, oh, he's got a lot of great descriptions of what that time is going to be for a thousand years. Listen, the, the Garden of Eden, 
experience is coming back to the whole planet. God's going to renovate the planet to Garden of Eden-like conditions. It's going to be lush. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be incredible. And, and then Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign over the whole planet in utter righteousness. We get to rule and reign with him as his bride, the church. It's going to be fantastic. And then Isaiah, remember we talked about this before in the prophecies days. And then we're going to have peace with nature. Remember that? You don't have to worry about the lion or the bear or the cobras. And it's at peace with, we, it's awesome. Well, to make sure you get yay even better, let's watch this video. This is what's coming to the whole planet. This is our future. This is amazing. Watch this. It's not exactly the partner you'd expect a primate to fall for, but an unusual love story has been forced between Surya, the six-year-old orangutan, and a stray hound dog named Roscoe. For these logic-defying friends, it's all hugs and cuddles since the day they met three years ago when Surya spotted the dog from high atop an elephant while on a ride with his trainers at this South Carolina animal park. To me, they seem like long-lost friends. This other, more whimsical partnership between predator and prey has been seen on YouTube some five million times. A cat and a bird that shouldn't get along playing hide-and-seek, even wrestling. Two of nature's enemies frolicking like fast friends. From the hippo and the tortoise who sidle up next to each other, so many of these relationships are hard to explain. How's this for a unique animal friendship? 350-pound lion Bone Digger is best friends with a fearless 7-year-old dash hound dog named Milo. They may seem like unlikely friends, but Jericho the horse is perfectly happy to let this baboon laze on his back while they both soak up the sun. It may look like this dog's days are over, as a jaguar appears to go in for the kill. But things aren't always what they seem. In fact, this unusual pair are actually best friends. These two struck it off straight away. And now this feline-canine combo are inseparable. They don't leave each other, they feed together, sleep together, do everything together. 24 hours a day, they haven't been separated at all. They are like brothers. Sean Ellis from Devon in England has integrated himself into a pack of wild wolves. The pack itself began when the wolves in particular um, were only a few days of age. I still consider myself to be part of that family. Okay, got the like millions of people around the world, Mark Duma loves nothing more than to take a morning swim. But for him, there is a rather massive difference as Mark swims with a polar bear. Having pet cats may sound run-of-the-mill, but Janice Haley has taken her love of felines to the extreme keeping two huge tigers in her back garden. Sabre, a 600-pound male white Bengal, and Janda, a 400-pound Bengal female, have lived with Janice since they were cubs. With their ability to crunch through human bone in a single bite, getting up close and personal with a 1,300-pound grizzly bear is not for the faint-hearted. But for 71-year-old Doug Zeus, coming face-to-face -face with the fearsome predators is all in a day's work. Start off. Good. That's good. Ah! Good. This pairing, researchers say, is one of the strangest animal bonds ever seen. A lioness who, instead of eating her dinner, adopts it. I think many people felt that this was, you know, had to be a message from God. Um, this was a miracle. This was, you know, the lion and the lamb laying down together. This is, this is a true story. It's about a lion named Christian. Okay, there were two men who adopted the lion, Ace Berg and John Rendell, and they bought the lion from Harrods Department Store. Who knows that they... You know, who thought right. they, so cubs. And in 1969, and the little cub weighed uh, 35 pounds. A year later, the little cub had grown, and he weighed 185 pounds. Mm -hmm. This is a love story, a true love story. Take a look. Man and beast. <laughs>
Isaiah. Isaiah tells us that's going to happen to the whole planet in the millennial kingdom. And we get to enjoy that. No more fear of lion and tigers and bears. Oh my. The lion will eat straw like an ox. A child will be able to even put his hand in a viper's nest and not be afraid and will not be harmed. A little child will lead. That's our future. What do you mean Christ hasn't done anything? What do you mean God hasn't done nothing? He has judged evil. He's put a limit on it, and then he's made a way out of it to a place beyond our wildest dreams, and then it just keeps getting better after, read the Bible, what happens after the millennial kingdom? We have the new heavens and the new earth, and so shall it be. It's called the eternal state, where you have no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more devil, no more demons, no more spiritual suffering, no more warfare, no more sin, no more, none of it. It's gone Forever. So don't listen to the evil ones. Oh, God, how can I got this? I'm going to do this. One day, no more of this. And not just for a weekend, not just for a year, but forever and ever. Read the scripture. How many times do you hear heaven bust now? Forever, forever. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Because they know what's coming. One day through Christ. All of this. It's made perfect like it was supposed to be in the beginning before Satan messed it up. But God's God, and he's going to fix it right. And through Christ, we deserve to go to hell, but he's going to give us all that. And then James says, oh, by the way, as you wait for that, I'm going to take everything that Satan and the evil and suffering junk world you're on now, I'm going to turn it around for you good. That's why he said, consider pure truth. You can't lose. But you've got to let it finish its work. Don't listen to the lie of the evil. I can't look at God. I can't understand. No. And I'm telling you, as we close, the way that you know that you're getting it, you're finally submitting to it. You got this biblical perspective. You know that God's in control. Nothing's by chance. And if he's allowed something to happen, this is not heaven. Heaven comes later. But he's promised he's going to do something good with it. Okay, how do I know I'm really You start asking the right questions. And the first question you need to ask in the midst of your trial is this. Lord, what are you, what are you trying to teach me? Now stop right there. Why do you need to ask that? Because it forces you to acknowledge the biblical truth. What you're going through is not my chance. What you're going through, God knows. What you're going through has something good in it. Because God says that's what he's going to do. Right? Romans 8, 28. Let's quote it again. And we know that in all things, how much is all? All? Is that your trials? Exactly. God works for the good of those who love him. Do you love him? Have you been called according to his purpose? Then guess what? Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Not just, hey, God, I just got a big giant bonus, $5 million. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for teaching me. It's in the hard times. God, what are you trying to teach me? 
You get, all means all. So you, you stop. Don't give in to unbiblical thinking. Don't listen to the lies that, you're like, oh my God, I shouldn't have to go through this stuff. And then take a lap. Okay, God, what are you, what, what are you trying to teach me? Because I know, not just in the good times, but in my trials, I can consider it pure joy because you're going to do something good. It might be perseverance, which makes me complete, mature, not lacking anything. It could be some of the other 20 reasons we saw biblically, but it's something good. That's the first question. The second one is this. Lord, how can I please you in this? Now, this is important in the midst of your trial because it reminds us of our personal responsibility. You see, I'm not responsible, and nor are you, of somebody else's behavior. I'm not condoning it. God doesn't condone sin or rottenness or evil, but I'm not responsible for it. But listen, we are responsible for our reaction to the behavior, right? And it's in that reaction that God might be trying to teach us something good. But if I don't acknowledge, not just that God's good and loving, and he's got something good in this plan, if I don't acknowledge that I have a personal responsibility, can I translate that for you? If I don't acknowledge there's something you're trying to change in me and replace it with something good. That's why I'm going through this. You get it? You, you, you can acknowledge all day long. Yeah, God's trying to teach me something, but it's those people. No. Get your focus off of that. God, what are you trying to teach me, and how can I please you in this? What do I need to change? Before I'm going like, Liz, Liz, Liz. God, how can I please you in this? What, do you, what, what are you trying to teach me, and what is it you're trying to change in me? How can I please you in this? Now, it could, it could last for a little while. It could last for a minute. It could last for an hour. It could last for a week. It could last for a year. And so this next question I've learned puts it into perspective in the midst of your trial. Um, how would my attitude change about this if I knew I was going to meet Jesus in five minutes? The minute you say that, you can almost hear the pressure go out. Because, <laughs> see, that's what we do, especially if it involves time. We, we get focused on our problems. We act like they're bigger than they are. We make the proverbial mountain out of the molehill, it, it, you know, and it, it's just all we can see. It's a black hole, and we just can't stop thinking about this and that, and what they did to me, and this and that, and I can't, the pain, la, la, la. But if you realize, listen, and this is biblical truth, the rapture is imminent. It can happen anytime, or you could die, right? So if I knew I was going to meet Jesus, and it's going to happen, I'm going to try to make it the last thing I do, but it's going to happen. You put your problem in that, and you're going like, is it really getting that worked up over in the span of eternity? And that's what James says later, right? What is your life? It's, it's what? It's a wisp of vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's like in the span of eternity? Come on. Is it really getting that worth worked up over? So that's the first. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? How can I please you in this? What are you trying to teach me? What, what do I need to change and yeah, I didn't say it easy, but this is not heaven. Heaven comes later. One day, I'm never going to have to deal with this again. Puts in perspective. And then the fourth one, here it is. I embrace this. I'm not going to run from this, God. I get it. I get it. Even not just the good times, even my challenging times, you're trying to teach me something. I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to blame other people. My focus is not going to be on that. My focus is on, God, what are you doing to this life. What do you want to see? I, I embrace this for all its work. I, listen, verse 4, it must finish its work. God, do whatever you got to do. Change me. In fact, before you change those people, before you change my circumstances, change me. I want to learn the lesson. I don't want to take a lap. I want to get it right this time. Do you get it? That, to me, those questions are a submissive attitude you need if you're not going to have Groundhog Day and do it all over again. Aren't you sick and tired of that? Yeah. So ask the appropriate question. Now, as we wrap it up, one of my favorite il ways to illustrate this truth in action is it's a true story. It's, it's our brother in Christ. His name's uh, Nikolai. And he was a Christian just like you and I. He was a writer of worship songs. Uh, young family, got married, got, had their first baby. And he's serving in the church. He's not out there doing all kinds of rotten, sinful things. And he's writing worship songs, whatever. And then all of a sudden, God broke up his plans. And he got sent off to jail in Romania for being a Christian. And what you're going to see, and I love this because it totally encapsulates the process that we go through in our trials. But you see how we're supposed to respond. And once you respond, 
that's when the fruit gets born. That's when the good thing gets launched out. And you're going to see him initially resist God's new plan that didn't make sense to him. But when he submits to it, watch what takes place. Fruit gets born like you never believe. God, in fact, knew what he was doing. But let's take a look at that. What are you doing with your pain, Christian? What are you doing with your grief? What are you doing with your heartache? This ain't heaven. 
Heaven comes later. Don't act like something weird's going on. But here's the good news. When God breaks your plans, will you submit to it? And saying, God, break my heart. Make me into the person you want me to be. There's something more important than me, myself, and I going on here. You're trying to do a good work in me. You want to use me to bear fruit. I thought I had it mapped out this way. It was looking good to me. And see, that's the problem. God's going to break your plans someday. But remember, see how he struggled in the beginning? And he wanted justice. It's wrong. When did the breakthrough come? God, break my plans. Go ahead and break my plans as many times as you want because your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And you got something better. Break my heart. God, teach me. Whatever I got to do. And then what happened? He began to blossom right there in the midst of a trial. He began to lead people to Christ. He wrote 300. This really happened. He wrote 360 hymns by memory. And they're still being sung in the church today, blessing people. Break my plans. Trust him. Surrender him. Submit. That's what James is saying in verse 4. It's got to finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. I'll give you one thing, and I learned this myself over the years as we close. And It was my first senior pastorate, and I was a greenhorn. And I thought, man, these people hired me, and they want to learn the Bible. This is awesome. That's what I want to do. That's what I went to seven years in Bible college and seminary for, to teach the Scripture. It's not what all churches are about. I had people in that community warn me about that church. It was a stain on the community. Lost people warned me about the church I was pastoring. We like you, but we'll never go there. We know what they're going to do. They warned me they're going to chew you up and spit you out because that's what they do. That was my first senior pastor. And sure enough, I lasted about four years. And I resigned. Felt led of the Lord. I wasn't running from the pain. If I was going to do it my way, I would have left the first year. But I'm not joking. I remember sitting on a pile of dirt. Job said, I'm dumb. I sat on dirt. My wife and two young children. And they're looking to me, to me, and I ain't got no answers. I don't know why this is happening. And I remember on that pile of dirt reading the scripture, and I remember the verse popped out at me when Paul says about his own suffering. He said, what has happened to me has happened for the advancement of the gospel. And I clung to that. And I said, God, I don't get it now. You broke my plans. This ain't how I thought it was going to turn out. But you're going to do something good with it. And it's going to have something to do with the good, getting the gospel out like never before. And sure enough, after that, we launched with the full-time with teaching ministry. I took a position in New York, came here 11 years ago, and we are now sharing the gospel to over 200 countries plus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because God broke my plans. What about yours? It's painful enough. But don't go through life like this with clenched fists. It's got to be my plan, my way, the way I thought life should go. Uh-uh. Open your hands up. If he wants to take it away, if he wants to put something in, it's a whole lot easier than digging in your heels and having to learn it all over again. Amen? Let it finish its work. Lord willing, I hear that there's been a lot of prayer going on and apparently it's paid off because Lord willing, next time we're in verse 5 with the next test. In your trial, do you seek God's word, you prayer warriors? Let's go ahead and pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell?
Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven. I need a savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row, it's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing 
every single day with all of us, this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive his pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what he was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.